Hello, and welcome to Our Chance of Becoming Human, a podcast that draws wavy lines between songwriting, translation, criminology, migration and integration. This is episode four, but don't worry if you haven't heard the other ones, feel free to just jump in here. The podcast started its life as a voice memo to keep my PhD supervisors up to date with what I've been learning and making, but it's become a way to bring my PhD research into dialogue with the wider world. So please do get in touch if anything in here resonates with your experience or your work, or indeed if you totally disagree with everything that I'm saying and think that this whole endeavour is a waste of time and funding. Either way, let's talk. This episode is going to take us on a wee journey between thinkers and makers and activists. From anthropologist and polymath Victor Turner, to radical feminist theorist Bell Hooks, to philosophers Deleuze and Guattari, to cellist Yo-Yo Ma and artist Doris Salcedo. As well as exploring the philosophy and the art of some of these public figures, I also want to introduce you to some voices that you probably won't have heard before. This all started with a weekend I spent a few months ago writing some songs with a group of amazing young women. I was working with the YCSA, the Youth Community Support Agency, which is a really boring name for a really great project based on the south side of Glasgow that seeks to nurture young people from minority backgrounds in lots of different ways. At the risk of sounding like a wildly proud and slightly embarrassing auntie, these young women were bold and creative and thoughtful and funny and full of warmth and hospitality. We spent two and a half quite intense days together, eating amazing food, including a lot of chilli and lemon crisps, laughing a lot and writing eight songs together. A few weeks later I went back and I had a chat with four of the women to learn from their reflections after the songwriting experience. And what I'd like to do in this podcast is to weave some of their music and thoughts in with the broader fabric of what I've been learning from elsewhere. The women preferred to remain anonymous, but they were happy for their voices to be heard. We talked a lot about the importance of voice in the last podcast as a kind of embodied marker of our total uniqueness and individuality. So I'm glad to be able to share their actual voices with you, interspersed throughout the podcast. But let's start with an introduction to Victor Turner. Although he was first and foremost an anthropologist, he has been variously described as an academic fool, a creative maverick, an innovative nonconformist, a polymath and an iconoclast. His early anthropological work as part of the Manchester School of British Social Anthropology involved fieldwork in Zambia, where he became increasingly concerned with studying ritual and the interpretation of symbolism and this would lead him to a lifelong interest in rites of passage, where the concept of liminality is central. So for Turner, liminality, from the Latin word limen, meaning threshold, is characterised by the ambiguous and transitional middle stage of rites of passage. When the person undergoing the ritual has left behind their previous identity, but not yet been installed in their new position. In Turner's own words, The attributes of liminality, or of liminal personae, threshold people, are necessarily ambiguous, since this condition and these persons elude or slip through the network of classifications that normally locate states and positions in cultural space. Liminal entities are neither here nor there. They are betwixt and between the positions assigned and arrayed by law, custom, convention and ceremonial. So you can see how this description of liminality as an in-between state, neither here nor there, 
might apply to people making the transition from prison to life in the community, or from residing in one country and culture to residing in another. In Turner's early research, liminal states are temporary, and he characterises the alternation between transition and structure as part of a healthy set of social relations. In an ideal world, processes of social integration should also be temporary states. However, for many people, this transitional realm, this neither here nor there, becomes a permanent state. Turner himself recognised this in modern society, where transition, he said, has become itself an institutionalised state, a permanent condition. What does this unending in-between space look like? On release from prison, many people serve what they call a second sentence, as their cardboard cutout ex-offender identity walks ahead of them, closing doors to meaningful work and community involvement. People who have fled war zones or trauma or climate change-induced food poverty in the hope of a better life find themselves caught up in a brutal, ineffective, arbitrary and totally impenetrable immigration system and held in limbo for years. An investigative report published last month in The Guardian revealed the stories of a handful of individuals who waited over 20 years for a decision on their asylum application, during which time they're not permitted to work and they face the ever-present threat of detention, as well as many other restrictions on their daily lives. In my previous job, I saw firsthand how this permanent powerlessness can wreak havoc on people's physical and mental health. But I also enjoyed the hospitality and creativity and resilience of people who are stuck in this waiting room with their whole lives on pause and still manage to find a way to keep getting up in the morning. We've returned regularly in this podcast to identity, how the flattening of identity to a single story or label or category stops the process of integration dead in its tracks because it deadens the human connections between us. And we've talked before about thoughtful creative processes as one way to help people access the richest and most polyphonic and dynamic form of their own multiple identities. And recently I read a bit about Deleuze and Guattari's process thinking, in particular their concept of becoming, which I find really helpful here. So process thinking messes with the more fixed concept of identity that we sometimes find in social science. Incidentally, this also resonates with Turner's processual approach to analysing ritual. He saw social life as a dynamic process in form. Indeed, he conceptualised his whole academic career as a fierce rebellion against petrification. Moisala explains this idea of process thinking um, as follows. He calls it an ontology that is not grounded upon being, but upon the processuality or primary dynamism of reality. This is to say that things, whether human subjects or philosophical ideas or musical formations, are not founded on an essence. Their being or identity consists in their processual and thereby inevitably varying open-ended existence. He and his colleagues have applied Deleuze and Guattari's thinking to musicking, Musicking is a concept developed by Christopher Small in 1998 that sees any act of music as an act that emerges from and establishes sets of relationships in specific places and times. In Small's words, it is in those relationships that the meaning of the act of musicking lies. So by this thinking there is neither a fixed meaning to a piece of music nor a fixed identity to those performing or listening. All is becoming. 
It is in this context that Moisala and his colleagues discuss noticing musical becomings. Their research through several case studies largely concerns noticing as a methodological principle. So this attunement, this presence in the moment, recalls Tim Ingold's discussion of attentiveness, which we talked about in episode three. They suggest that in music studies, a move away from knowing towards noticing could be explained as a move away from certainty regarding what musicking is towards a productive uncertainty that leaves room for new imaginings, research encounters and methodological experimenting. They suggest that noticing consists of efforts to remain open to the proliferating of becomings and relations of musicking. And this awareness of becomings has strong echoes of um, Alison Phipps' idea of linguistic incompetence from the first podcast, where she suggests that a focus on our capacity and openness to learn through our encounters is of much more importance than a focus on what we already know. This all makes sense to me in the sense that it opens up a world of possibility. And it's also great for disrupting labels and fixed identities like the view of people as marginalised or disadvantaged or vulnerable as a permanent or semi-permanent state. If I can digress for a moment with a wee story. A good friend of mine who lives in London, in a house of refuge for people from other countries who have nowhere else to live, was listening to the first episode of this podcast in the kitchen of that house. And one of the guests who was living there at the time was listening, and she commented with interest, Is this about me? Am I a marginalised person? My friend shared this reflection with me and she explained that her comment was not necessarily expressed in a critical way, but more as a non-native English speaker learning a new word. But this sat uneasily with me and as I reflected, I realised that by referring to marginalised people with however much of a will to change this, I'm immediately cementing that identity of outsider and flattening identities left, right and centre. Since then, I've tried to pay closer attention to my language. For example, using the term people who experience an imbalance of power against them. This might seem unwieldy or it might seem like an insignificant change, but I believe that this terminology places the experience of people as central rather than simply sticking a label on them. After all, experiences can change or remain in the past, whereas categories are harder to shift. So enough talk, let's turn to music making. In previous podcasts, we have explored how fragmentation and polyphony in the songwriting process might help us enrich our own sense of identity and give us tools to approach and begin to process trauma in an oblique and non-triggering way. So here's an activity that does some of that. um, And this is what we use to open our songwriting weekend at the YCSE um, in reflecting together on our multiplicity of identities. So first, everyone drew around their hand, and inside that shape we wrote down roles that we identify with. I am a friend, I am a student, a daughter, a cook, an animal lover, ways that other people might describe us. Then we began to explore metaphors from nature, mythology or the urban landscape, other things that we might identify with. I am a wave, I am a fighter, I am a coastal ruin, I am a sweet potato. We then took everyone's favourite identities, literal or metaphorical, and jigsaw puzzled them into a set of lyrics. And then my brilliant colleague, Donna Machocha, took the lead on helping the participants to find chords and a melody that they liked. 
We then wrote a chorus that incorporated all the languages represented in the group. And all of this from start to finish in about half an hour max. So without further ado, here is a very rough demo version of the song. When I went back to the group to chat about the songwriting process, we talked a bit about this song. So here's a snippet of our conversation. So good. Um, the, um, the group song that we wrote together like in a really short time on, on the Friday night, um, when we sang that together, um, when we were here, did that, how did that feel? Good. <laughs> I mean, each each line is comes from every one of us, mm. so it's like a good empowering song. Like, mm. 
all of our feelings wrapped in one seeing it all together it was it was a really nice experience and did it how did it feel like trying to use the different everybody's different languages in the song that made it amazing yeah, yeah very amazing. it made it feel like you know um without blood when we're still like family yeah. you know it's like we're all one person mm-hmm. we all come from one place mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and it's it's like we were lost and we met again in one place mm-hmm. yeah. and I really love it I'm a listener I'm a fighter it's like yeah. I, I didn't I wasn't there when you meet oh of course yes but I felt a part of it. Someone put me there. I'm a, ta- I'm a, I'm the town on a Friday night. <laughs> to my mind, there are a lot of interesting reflections in this wee tiny snippet. One thing that comes across is that maybe through expressing this multitude of poetic identities, everyone sees themselves reflected in it. And the result is that Rather than one particular person's own line that they contributed being what jumps out at them, it becomes a tapestry where it feels like each line comes from every one of us. And where someone who wasn't there when the song was written can feel that she is represented there too, with the brilliantly Glaswegian and yet somehow universal line, I am the town on a Friday night. The conversation here also surfaces the sense of connection from using each other's languages. Without bloodline, you're still family. And it's like we were lost and we met again. This idea of being lost and then finding one, one another again has some echoes of how Victor Turner describes a rite of passage. And to me, it's quite exciting that the experience of making a song together can be perceived as having that effect. Turner uses the Latin term communitas to refer to a state of being between people who are experiencing liminality together an unstructured and egalitarian set of relationships, what he calls a limbo of statuslessness. The girl's rich metaphor of being lost and finding one another within that space strikes me as a great way of describing communitas. Turner describes liminality and communitas as being characterised by features like transition, humility, absence of status, anonymity and equality. Maybe we can learn from trying to incorporate some of these characteristics into our shared creative processes. The song incorporates seven languages, I think, including Yoruba, Malayalam, uh, Portuguese and Somali. We ended up performing it all together on a massive stage at the European Championships. And as we sang it together, it felt to me like something a little bit magical happened as we tasted each other's words and rolled them around in our mouths and probably mispronounced them and were gracious enough not to point that out to each other. To me, there was something profoundly hospitable about this moment where we danced in and out of each other's linguistic homelands and opened up an auditory space for the rest of George Square in the middle of Glasgow to join us. I know that a lot of what I'm describing here is highly subjective. We all see the world through complicated lenses made out of our values and political leanings and relationships and experiences. Surely being a researcher is all about being objective and scholarly, though? Well, 
I'm finding that in this hinterland between arts and social science research, what makes the most sense is to be reflexive and to acknowledge my own positionality. And to describe what I see with an awareness of how my biases reflect what I see. Noticings and becomings are helpful concepts in this regard because they are highly relational and they don't claim or seek objectivity. Nonetheless, it's still complicated to combine art, research and activism. I've found it helpful here to read a bit of Chantal Mouffe's work on artistic activism and agonistic spaces. She asks whether artistic practice can still play a critical role in a society where the difference between art and advertising have become so blurred. She talks about how countercultural aesthetic strategies have been co-opted by a capitalist system. And she advocates intervention in social and public life to create what she calls agonistic spaces. She challenges the rationalist belief in the possibility of reaching universal consensus based on reason. And thus she challenges the idea of public space as a terrain where it's possible for consensus to emerge. Instead, she sees public space as a battleground on multiple discursive surfaces. And perhaps this little group bringing their multiple identities and linguistic hospitalities into a very public space is one tiny intervention that might in some way challenge some of the exclusions of the dominant social order. I had the privilege of going to a conference in Venice a couple of weeks ago on the theme of musical free space. And one of the conference organisers, Ed Emery, talked about the practice of leading a multilingual, multinational choir at the higher education institution where he works. And he talked about how, when he was told that there was not a room available for them to rehearse, he began the now established practice of occupying the stairwell at 6pm every Thursday as a form of auditory insurgency, a musical protest. Again, an intervention into public space, bringing voices that may be underrepresented in the dominant social and political narrative. I think it makes sense to characterise that as insurgency, but I also like the idea of describing it as a form of hospitality. Maybe that's partly because on a personal level I am not the best at surfacing conflict. But I also think that fundamentally integration has to be about welcome, so there must be value in modelling a form of welcome publicly as a form of agonistic intervention, but one that invites us to inclusion in our discourse and in our social relations. In a recent episode of the On Being podcast with Krista Tippett, French-American cellist Yo-Yo Ma talks in a beautiful and really fascinating way about how, for him, the music exists in between the notes in the liminal spaces. He also talks at length about performance as hospitality, as gift, and about our vulnerability and weakness as a strength and a route towards connection. Following this thread of musical and linguistic hospitality, I'd like to take us to feminist theorist and social activist Bell Hooks, and I'd like to read you a segment from her 1989 paper called Choosing the Margin as a Space of Radical Openness. And I think what she articulates here is about this idea of language as an agonistic intervention in public space. She says this. <clears throat> Often when the radical voice speaks about domination, we are speaking to those who dominate. Their presence changes the nature and direction of our words. Language is also a place of struggle. I remember the smells of my childhood, hot water cornbread, 
turnip greens, fried pies. I remember the way we talked to one another, our words thickly accented black southern speech. Language is also a place of struggle. We are wedded in language, have our being in words. Language is also a place of struggle. Dare I speak to oppressed and oppressor in the same voice? Dare I speak to you in a language that will move beyond the boundaries of domination? A language that will not bind you or fence you in or hold you. Language is also a place of struggle. The oppressed struggle in language to recover ourselves, to reconcile, to reunite, to renew. Our words are not without meaning. They are an action, a resistance. Language is also a place of struggle. This struggle is complex, and one thing that we might helpfully be able to do here is to avoid binary oppositions. Dirks notes how, in the exercise of colonial control, traditional cultural forms were often reconstructed by the colonising power, emphasising oppositions between colonisers and colonised, between European and Asian or African, between modern and traditional, between West and East, even male and female. Current forces of political polarisation demonstrate a toxic binary discourse in a more globalised form, and art in all of its forms has a part to play in nuancing the dialogue. Dwight Conkergood, an ethnographer with a particular interest in performance, makes reference to Michel de Certeau's aphorism, What the map cuts up, the story cuts across. What the map cuts up, the story cuts across. He suggests that this points to transgressive travel between two different domains of knowledge, one official, objective and abstract, the map, and the other one practical, embodied and popular, the story. He talks about the promiscuous traffic between these different ways of knowing as a way to pull the pin on the binary opposition between theory and practice. Colombian artist Doris Salcedo says that art cannot explain things, but it can expose them. She describes her practice as creating public artworks as acts of mourning, and in doing so she sees herself as giving tools for politics in public space. For example, her installation for the 2003 Istanbul Biennale consisted of 1,500 wooden chairs precariously stacked in the space between two city buildings which, for her, represented one way of evoking the masses of faceless migrants who underpin our global economy. Music has a role here too, not in an instrumentalist sense of trying to convert people to a particular political point of view, but in surfacing important questions and creating space for a different kind of discourse. As a researcher, I need to constantly return to my own positionality within this struggle. As someone speaking from a place of privilege, how do I use that? My education, my skin colour, my trauma-free childhood, the opportunities, the access that I have. How do I use that to open up spaces of linguistic and musical hospitality? I don't like the concept of giving a voice to people because people already have their own voices and they don't need me to come along and give them a voice. But opening up hospitable auditory spaces, that makes sense to me. On that note, let's go back to the voices of the YCSA group. I asked some of the songwriters about how listening back to the songs felt. And one participant said this. Um, I feel like music brings people together because 
people see it in different ways and people relate to it so when you like hearing one of the group songs like and then you feel like oh it it touches me i've been through that and it's like oh i can relate to that and it's not only me going through that and and you see that person is like she's strong she's amazing she's going through it and it's like well you can do that as well you mm. know so being in a journey with different people and they making amazing music about their own journey and what they've been through it's after that you're like you know you keep going mm. i guess and it's like it's like a boost of energy it's like if they can do it you can do it too. Mm. so yeah. it's really so here, to a listener within the group, the songwriter's identity is primarily perceived as she's strong, she's amazing. The listener hears in the song another person's courage in coming out the other side of a difficult experience and talking or singing about it. And she feels galvanised, like she can do it too. Their experiences and situations are not the same, but the listener finds meaning in the song that she applies to her own situation. Deleuze and Guattari's processual identity here makes sense again, the fluid and polyphonic flux of who we are and how that is moulded and shifted from moment to moment by relationships and how we go about noticing that. Paying attention to these ever-changing identities is not about papering over the cracks of marginalisation, but valuing the perspective and experience it offers and creating space for mutually attentive exchange. I've been reading a great book called Contested Belongings. And in one chapter of it, Helena or Karenin Jabai talks about the strength and multifacetedness offered by outsider positions. She clarifies further that in working and conducting arts-based research alongside diverse communities in Finland, that she is not advocating some kind of homogenization or normalization but rather empowered identities for people located in the margins. She draws on other voices to explore this process, such as Bill Ashcroft's notion of horizon, as a challenge to the concept of boundary. She suggests that this might facilitate the emergence of different dimensions of hybrid post-colonial subjectivity. I love this idea of horizons. Instead of locating people in the binary of the centre or the margins, or is restricted by boundaries and borders. The idea of each person's horizon lends legitimacy to our unique individual perspectives, our imagination, our intersubjectivity, our relationships, our aspirations, our pasts, our futures. Maybe collaborative songwriting processes present us with a unique opportunity to explore and to notice our horizons. I'd like to finish with another song from the YCSA Songwriting Project. My sister-in-law always says, be friends with your principles. In other words, forget your own rules sometimes, have the odd cigarette or massive chocolate muffin, the world is not going to end. This is a song where we didn't really do any of the things that I've talked about in terms of fragmentation or metaphor or using different languages. It's just a really straightforward song that one of the participants wrote to express her care for some people that she greatly misses and her hope that they'll be together again one day. It's called Keep Moving. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm.
to my life and you you will always be there but i can't see myself anymore now that you're far away i miss you every moment my breath my laugh my strength my sweet achievement you make me feel complete 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 a place to keep my word and a peaceful mind no one can take your place cuz you're always in my heart cuz you're always in my heart so we should keep on moving everything's gonna be all right we'll spend time together and after darkness light and after darkness light and after darkness light sweet achievement my sweet and after darkness my sweet achievement and after darkness my sweet achievement my sweet achievement and after darkness my sweet achievement and after darkness my sweet achievement my sweet and after darkness my sweet achievement my sweet achievement my sweet achievement